Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership program that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring the extraordinary, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for everyone, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guest this week is an author and innovator, an activist and a philosopher with ideas that are world-changing. Jeremy Lent was a businessman, but life changes that he will talk about shifted his perspective, and he went on a search that lasted many years for the meaning of life. Sense-making has become a bit of a buzzword in our corner of the internet, but Jeremy has brought a sharp mind and deep embodied practice to a making of sense that has the potential, I think, to transform us all. His published book, The Patterning Instinct, is a history of who we are and how we got here. And he has a new one coming out in the spring called The Web of Meaning, an integration of modern science with traditional wisdom, which sounds very much like the kind of thing that this podcast would celebrate. So, We began a little raggedly, without our usual sharp start. We were reflecting on Extinction Rebellion, the action that's happening as we recorded, and the fact that we were both part of the action in London last October. And in the end, I chose not to cut that out. So, with our somewhat relaxed start, people of the podcast, please welcome Jeremy Lent. Yes, I was just checking in on what's going on with the rebellion. And I guess there were like 300 people arrested yesterday or the day before. Yes, I think so. Uh, The interesting thing is, it's I don't know about your media, but uh, the BBC is treating it as if it's not happening, which is deeply distressing. Yes, I had to search, uh, you know, to find the one little article, even in The Guardian, uh, it's certainly not there on yeah. the sort of main feed. I, I read the Guardian every day, yeah. uh, the the sort of US version, but it was yeah. just not there. I had to really yeah. search on the web to find uh, yeah. any mention about it. Yeah, I think if you've got XR in your feed, it will come up. But otherwise, I I was there for the October Rebellion. I think you were there yes. you, in the October Rebellion last year, weren't you? Because you did that video. I was, yes. I, I was able to to speak to the group for... Uh, 15 minutes or so before the police did another yeah. of their move, yeah. movements in to try to... Yes, please move on. And that was videoed and it's right. online and I will share it. Um, but this time they're moving people much faster and much harder. And last time I was part of the group that sat outside the BBC for pretty much all of the mm. first Friday of the first week. and And I can see why they didn't report that because then anyone who chooses to sit in the de- de- you know the steps of the BBC right. suddenly becomes newsworthy and you know, that's that's a, a very steep downward spiral but they didn't report yeah. any of it and and they're not doing it again and 
we have this pretense that we have a neutral public broadcaster, and we just don't. So that's part of part of the problem that we will have to address. So let's let's pretend we haven't just started. Jeremy Lent, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you for this. I read your book way back when I was doing the Masters in Regenerative Economics at Schumacher and the head of department put it in my hands and said, you have to read this, you will love it. That was the patterning instinct. And I, I did and I did. And now I've been reading your blog about the ecological civilization and it feels to me that of all the people I'm reading, you have the most coherent concept of a way forward. So welcome, and I look forward to talking about that. Yeah, well, uh, thank you so much, Manda. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So thanks, and, and thanks for the kind words about the book. Everybody will run out and read it, I hope. So let's go back a little bit and start more or less at the beginning of your beginning to think about how we might go forward, because you did an MA at Cambridge, and then an MBA in the States? Yes, actually, it was a, a, just a BA at Cambridge. But oh, okay. That's exactly right, in English literature. And then I left England and came to the States. This is back in 1981, at the time of Thatcher's, wow. uh, yes. Thatcher's neoliberal takeover of England. And yeah, I just kind of felt I wanted to explore the world. It, England just felt so limited to me growing up there and mm. just like still living in the path in the in the Commonwealth and the yeah. Empire. And then with Thatcher's, yeah, just horrible, all, all the horrible things she was bringing. What I didn't realize, of course, is that I came to the States thinking it was you some escaped. sort of, I, I was transfixed by the, the, the film's from Woodstock and stuff like that, and then had no idea I was landing in Reagan's Reagan, yep. America, even yeah. worse than anybody could dream about. But I ended up with somebody who I later married who had been all through the hippie era and uh, had traveled all over South America. And I spent time with her in Central America, which was very formative for me in mm. the um, mountains of Guatemala with the indigenous people. But then she had two sons who became my stepsons, wanted to settle down. So we kind of agreed, well, let's, um, uh, let me go do an MBA. And in the words we used at the time, let's, you know, go into the belly of the beast for a few years and, um, give a, a a sort of solid, um, sort of background for the, for these, for the two sons to grow up and, um, have a have a good start in life. That was the idea <laughs> behind <laughs> this redirection of my life that took place, which it was a very strange uh, thing when I look back on it because it wasn't how where I expected I was going to go when I was a, a student at Cambridge. But as you say, I ended up getting an MBA in the absolute heart of neoliberalism, the University of Chicago, it's the, aye, aye, aye. the home of yes. Milton Friedman. Yes, and the whole neoliberal school basically came from Chicago. It's called the Chicago School. And so were you right. totally, you were completely imbued with neoliberal concepts being there, or were there more radical people? Yes, well, you know, it's so, that's what's so interesting. I on the one hand, I kind of, I always maintained a, some sort of sense of values different from that whole business ethos. On the other hand, it did have an impact on me. Like so many others, I did get transfixed by the this um, sort of alchemy of this way of thinking that actually 
the free market works so well and it works mm. for everyone's benefit and by everyone pursuing mm. their selfish ends, um, everyone, the whole uh, system is more efficient and that works for everyone's, everyone's good. And that made sense to me. It, it was drummed into me so much yeah. that I actually believed it. Yeah. Which, as I look back and now, I say, "How could I? How could I?" Um, and but it, I think it's interesting because it does show me the power of ideas yeah. to um, really sort of set the frame for what people believe is good. And you know, the thing is, what is so seductive about that way of thinking is that what it tells people is that um, they can be selfish, look out for themselves. Mm. And they're actually, that's a good thing to yeah. be doing. So you can feel morally justified by being like a selfish person yep. taking advantage of others. Yep. And I think that's why it's so seductive for people. They can actually, um, you know, pursue these, uh, these kind of drives that our society uh, instills in people and actually feel good about yeah. it. And not only is it morally good, it's part of your heritage that you cannot escape. I think it's an incredibly seductive narrative of this is who you are. And if you are very, very good at it, then you are the best of people. Yes, and that's right. That's right. So you can, um, and of course, the the downside of that narrative is for the vast majority of people who are shut out of these the sort of escalators of power. The you know basically yeah. escalators because all you got to do is step on it, and yeah. once you're there, you don't really have to move a muscle, yep. and you just automatically find yourself in this place of privilege. But for the vast majority of people shut out of it, then they're told not just that it's not fair, and they that they they feel the sense of envy, but they they believe they instill in themselves this notion that it's their fault. Yeah. Yeah. So they feel really bad about themselves, yes. and that just opens them up for this kind of fascistic. Yeah. Um, way of thinking of pointing fingers at others and, and hate yeah. and self-hate turns yeah. into hate for those yes. who are not like you and all those all those horrible situations we're seeing right now. And there's a very odd kind of double think, which is definitely coming to the surface now, which is we, the white supremacists, believe that certain people are genetically superior to other people. So basically white men are superior to anyone who isn't male and isn't white. And yet, at the same time, we can hold this belief system that says if anybody works hard enough, they can get themselves to the top because that then excuses the total excess of behavior that we display. And there doesn't seem to be any mismatch between these. I, I couldn't hold both of those simultaneously. I wouldn't want to hold either one of them. But I, I keep coming up against people who seem to be able to hold them both which including the entire government of the United Kingdom at the moment, um, <laughs> right. which is it was kind of interesting. I, I think nobody's ever really questioned it in a way that they've heard the questions. But anyway, let's move on. So you, because I, I had, I had gleaned from the biographies that I read that you were in the belly of the beast because that's where you wanted to be. But actually, it sounds like you were in there as an insurgent from the beginning. But then you set up a company. Exactly. I think, I think really what you, what my story kind of shows is that if you, you can go into that world with good intentions, but when you are surrounded by it day in, day out, year after year, those good intentions easily get eroded. Um, and, um, but yes, I, I did. I started, I started my own company during the, the first internet wave. Huh. 
It was actually a credit card company. It was the first company ever to allow people to apply for a credit card online and get approved in real time. Oh, well and it was a, a big success. And I got this blue chip venture capital funding. Um, I was the CEO and I took the company public and did the whole the whole sort of thing, this whole oh. IPO. Um, and things were, it was a little, little bit like sort of becoming a rock star, you, mm. you know, like, so all of a sudden, like, who is this person? You, you don't even recognize yourself and you sort of see <laughs> yourself on TV on the articles or whatever. Wow. But then all of this crashed around me uh, quite soon after the IPO. Um, my wife at the time, and she, uh, she died some years back, she got uh, quite um, seriously ill mm. with some of the things that ended up causing her death. And um, I wanted to really look after her. So I, I sort of um, cut back the time I was with the company, and then I just basically left. Um, I stayed around as the sort of uh, on the board, but I, I left my full-time position as CEO to look after her. Okay. And I left the company too early when it was still in its early stage. And within a year or two, it really started falling apart. And meanwhile, my wife was suffering severe cognitive decline as a, as a sort of a result of some of what she was suffering. And so I kind of lost her. So even though I was looking after her for a lot of years wow. after that, the the person I had loved and known was really no longer there. Um, so I was so isolated. Um, I had virtually no uh, network of friends. I'd left uh, people behind that I'd been um, close to in those earlier years. And mm. it felt like everything I'd built around my life was crashing around me. And this was a moment of uh, deep transformation for me. And I, I sort of realized I still had a life ahead of me. It wasn't like my life was over by any means, but I had this kind of choice really, like where is it going to, where am I going to redirect my life? And I vowed to myself at that time that whatever path I took was going to be truly meaningful. But I'd realized that this path that I had taken was a dead end really. And I'd built my values, my ideas around things that other people had told me rather than really understanding for myself what was meaningful. So then right. this began this whole journey for me of trying to understand, well, where does meaning actually come from? Yes. Um, and these ideas we're told about, whether it's, you know, I could throw out this whole idea of this neoliberal ideology, but any things we're told about, if I um, wanted to sort of let my soul be fulfilled, well, what is my soul? What does that even mean? Yes. Um, and yes. where, you know, what are the things that we're told in Western culture where do these ideas actually come from? So I started doing this multi-year research project, basically, just reading um, just, just anything I could get my hands on to a little bit like a detective puzzle. Like, what? Huh. where does, if, if I'm looking at some idea, like the sort of separation between mind and body, well, why is that? Why do some uh, cultures not think that? Others do. Right. And so it was like peeling the onion. And I began to go back in time all the way to earliest um, sort of ancient Greek ideas and then all the way back to uh, early indigenous ideas. And then I started to look at um, the sort of scientific takes on things and came across the, the whole sort of Richard Dawkins reductionist type of approach mm. that ultimately we're all just about selfish genes and um, yeah. ultimately the universe has no meaning whatsoever. And something in me didn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't accept that, not because I didn't want to, but because I felt 
in my core being that that was just plain wrong. Brilliant. But I also wanted to make sure that whatever I believed in as meaningful was really coherent. To your point you just made earlier, I, I wasn't willing to hold things in my head that didn't fit together. So this was a real puzzle to me. And then after, as I was really deep in this research, it began to come together. And I began to recognize how wrong those reductionists were. And um, I began to recognize a different way of understanding meaning. Brilliant. And it seems to me that what you are doing is single-handedly trying to answer the big question of humanity, which is what are we here for? Right. And that you've gone about it, you have a Cambridge education, so you have gone back to the absolute roots of what humanity is and explored what meaning has been for people down the ages. And I've read your book and you go right back to when we were all forager hunters and then through the agrarian millennia to where we are now. And we could look a little bit about that in a minute, but I'm wondering along the way there, did you find a sense of meaning that was personal to you that you can get up in the morning and this powers you through the day? Yeah, thank you for asking that. And the answer is yes. Um, and largely that was driven by a parallel path of discovery that I was on. While I was doing all this reading, I was also doing my own embodied um, exploration oh. of meaning. Right. Uh, and that involved different, all kinds of paths. Um, one of the most important for me was just discovering meditation, which mm. uh, for most of my life, if you'd asked me what meditation was, I would have really had no idea, like some sort of mystic state you get in or whatever. And <laughs> once I yeah. actually discovered it, it felt like a real coming home. Um, and it really transformed my sense of being in my own consciousness. Um, and right. uh, and I still I meditate regularly to this day. And I, I'm just so grateful for that amazing uh, tradition that is there. That uh, which, I, which tradition do you follow? Um, well, I, my kind of meditation is mostly the Buddhist-based sort of mindfulness meditation. Yeah, uh, the Vipassana. And, yeah. But without necessarily having any religious trappings. Um, sure. uh, so there's a, a sort of like secular Buddhist type of approach, which speaks to me, right. even though there yeah. are issues about um, that that sort of uh, way of approaching Buddhism. Um, and I don't, I don't call myself a Buddhist, but I very much um, respect and love that tradition. And a lot of what I believe is meaningful um, arises from what I've learned from that tradition. So that was one very important form. And also um, more embodied approaches. Um, I discovered uh, what is really kind of big in California and also other places around the world, this notion of conscious dance, where you just kind of dance and um, you don't try to uh, do that in some formal way of learning steps or whatever, but really get in touch with your body in community with others around you with music. And that was hugely um, liberatory for me. And, um, yeah, and traditional Chinese practices. Qigong is something that I just again when i first discovered qigong I had no idea what it was and the very first day i um did a um an, a cup a session i felt i was at home i felt this is a feeling that hmm. it felt like as if i'd felt it all my life but never knew what it was and it's it's something else that i do every day now and 
um, I'm incredibly grateful for. I think it's, to me, it's as important as meditation as a way of really feeling a sense of integrative um, being with yourself in a meaningful way. Brilliant. Thank you. That Yes. And for people listening, I think one of the things that we try and emphasize in the podcast is the difference between declarative knowing and performative knowing. And declarative is, I know that meditation is a really good idea and I can list all of the really amazing things that it would do to my physiology and my neurochemistry and my blood pressure and all of those things. And performative knowing is actually sitting down and doing it. And and you've done that. You've done all of the embodied work, which is sounds glorious. Is is the the dance just for my own interest, is that linked to the five rhythms? Um, absolutely, mm-hmm. yes. Um, it's a, it's a, a larger sort of practice area of which five rhythms is one approach to that. But uh, okay. yeah, f- five rhythms is definitely one of the um, richest mm-hmm. approaches to that kind of conscious dance. Brilliant. Sounds amazing. I want to come to California. <laughs> so, so in all of this, just again, from my own curiosity, your stepsons were growing up or had grown up and left home by then? Um, during this time, yeah, they had left home at that point. When they were, one was uh, um, in college and one was already uh, actually a doctor um, and, uh, you know, already had his own family. So right. I was very, that's why I was even more isolated, um, right. really on my own during this this kind of period of transformation. Okay, and you dealt with it. I I'm very impressed. A lot of us faced with a double collapse like that. I think would would slide into the slough of despond rather fast. But you chose to see it as as a time of growth. And so having done the embodied practice, having found the personal meaning that arises out of that. Where did that take you? Because at some point, presumably the research stopped and the being active and sharing the results of your research began. Yes. Well, as I was doing this research, and one of the things I was doing in the first few years was looking for a book or some writer or some kind of book that would help to map out for me what I was looking for. It would help to take me through where these different ideas came from and peel the onion for me. And I guess I began to realize that book wasn't there. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I should do that um, myself for others who were on a similar kind of path of inquiry and, and discovery. So that's actually where um, the patterning instinct came from, was uh, this realization at some point that uh, by putting all these pieces together, I could not just help myself to make sense of things, but offer something of value, uh, hopefully of value to the world. Yeah. Um, and really what I was putting together was not just that book, The Patterning Instinct, but the the book that I've just finished writing right now that's actually going to be published next spring called The Web of Meaning, uh, Integrating oh, Science and Traditional Wisdom to find our place in the universe. Um, and originally these two books were going to be one, but <laughs> the topics got huh. so big, I realized there was no way that could happen. And um, yes. so the, the patterning instinct really looks historically at uh, how different cultures have made meaning out of the universe, all the way from hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. times, as you mentioned, to the present day. Um, and as I was doing that research, and I was beginning to put things together myself, it began to dawn on me that the ways in which our current society um, had 
um, mismanage this process of meaning making essentially um, has become so consequential, the imbalance is so extreme that it's actually putting um, our very civilization at risk and is causing massive, horrendous devastation for the natural world, um, while it's also causing horrendous um, misery for the vast bulk of humanity. Um, and it, it took me a while because of the factors we'd talked about. When I was in that business world, I was just not that aware of some of the en environmental devastation going on around and just reading mm -hmm. mainstream media, just like everybody else, not just not getting it. And as I began to look deeper and understand what was going on, I got to be driven by an absolute imperative to do anything I could in my life to try to redirect where our culture and civilization is going. And that's really right. what I see my life as being about right now. I, I do see myself at this point um, and uh, it really as a kind of an agent for life. As uh, and, and this is not to put myself up as somebody special. I believe millions of us around the world uh, waking up to what's going on, see themselves yeah. in a very, very similar place. Just look at the horror of what's happening, feel how wrong that is, and are really dedicating themselves to transforming for in the interest of life, in the interests of humanity, in the interest of future generations. And so I just really see myself as one of those people really devoted to mm. what, what I can, along with others, to transform our direction. And you are acting as a trailblazer, I think. And particularly, I am so looking forward to the book that's published in the spring. Who's your publisher? Um, it's actually two publishers. In the UK, it's Profile Books, uh, who are oh, okay. wonderful independent uh, press who uh, really get behind progressive ideas a lot. And uh, in North America, um, it's New Society Publishers. You've evolved the web of meaning which is the title of your book, and you've evolved this concept of an ecological civilization as the next step of human civilization and how we might get there. So can we begin to have a look at what it is that we could be if the millions of us who want to be agents for life were able to make that happen, perhaps in the face of and in spite of those who don't quite get it yet? Yes, I, th I think that is so important because what one of the things we need so much is to be aware of the possibilities that do exist in the future. It's very easy to see the devastation around us right now and to see what's wrong. It's much yeah. harder to see what's possible in a positive future because that's very rarely talked about. And in the frames yes. of our culture, it's almost impossible to even envisage something like that. Yeah. And yet, if we can't envisage it, we can't get to it. Yes. That's the key, isn't it? We don't know where we're going. We won't get there. There's this sense like, well, we don't want to get too idealistic because then it becomes unrealistic and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. what I've begun to realize is that actually what is unrealistic is maintaining any sense of trying to incrementally improve things in our current destructive mm -hmm. paradigm and believe that that can lead to a positive outcome. That's what's truly yep. unrealistic. What is yes. realistic is to realize how deeply wrong things are and to realize that there is a possibility of change but only if we transform at the deepest levels deepest layers okay 
so yeah, so the this idea of an ecological civilization, it's inspired by you know, the indigenous wisdom that's been around for millennia. So it's not exactly like a new idea, it's really an very old idea, but it's one that in recent decades, a few leading thinkers have begun to sort of piece together what could be possible um, under a different kind, if we had a civilization under a different kind of foundation. And the, the simple framing idea behind it is if we look at our current civilization and we realize that ultimately it's based on um, wealth accumulation, it's based on extraction, it's based on a sense of separation and the fundamental of it is you're meant to, and everything is is the, the power structures, everything is based on uh, extracting wealth. And an ecological civilization would be based on one that is life-affirming. So it's mm. the foundation itself is what is actually, um, what actually affirms life. And the, the concept is that the way in which we structure the civilization uses the same kind of principles that life itself has evolved over literally billions of years on earth to develop its own stable, rich, healthy ecologies, which if they were left alone um, away from human depredation, can last for millions and millions of years, always in health, always changing along with the environment, but always remaining kind of mm. stable at the same time. What would it be like if we actually structured our civilization on that kind of basis. And how would we go about doing that? Because this is, in a way, it's a biomimicry or or even a cosmomimicry. I read a paper about cosmomimicry the other day, that we would be following patterns that already exist within the natural world. But in a practical level, how can we begin to make that happen? Or let's let's take a step ahead. What would it look like when we get there? If we begin to do that, sure, yeah, that's um, a, a great place to begin. And before I do that, by the way, I was just curious: was it a paper by Freya Matthews that you were reading about? Um, she wrote this great paper. She's a yes. an, an ecological yes. philosopher. She wrote this great paper looking at biomimicry just from a much deeper perspective than people usually do. I would need to go and look it up. It was called Cosmomimicry. I have read so many things in the last few days. Right. I'll go and find it, and I'll find a link, and I will send it yeah. to you. Uh, it could have been. And if not, I need to read the Freya Matthews, because there is so much, yes. I think, richness and depth in the whole biomimicry concept. But yes. Exactly. That's right. So so anyway, to to, to get to your, your question, well, I guess um, maybe the, the first thing to do is look at some of the core principles of what that, how that civilization would be structured, and then say, well, in practice, what does that actually mean? So in terms of the, the, the principles, really like the same sort of principles that have enabled ecologies to uh, thrive uh, for, you know, for so long, that one of the fundamental principles is simply called symbiosis, which is this recognition that the way that life actually evolved its complexity is by different parts of living systems, different organisms, working out how they could offer something to uh, another organism um, so that it was a win-win situation, so that together mm -hmm. they were able to help each other and rather than a, a sort of zero-sum game, like, you know, that we're told 
in the, the sort of mm-hmm. selfish gene concept, like everyone's out to beat everybody else. And that's actually not how evolution works. How it actually works is by different entities getting together and sharing their particular skills to create something bigger that is better for all. And so simple examples of that would be how like um, fungi, you know, take all the debris and detritus of plants and mm-hmm. animal matter and they reorganize that to radi- make the soil fertile for, for plants. And um, yes. uh, other simple things is like plants are superb at photosynthesis, um, but then they need help in um, moving their seeds around. So then they offer a nutrition to animals who then in turn move the seeds of the, of the plants to enable the whole ecology to strengthen. And every single element of life is like that. We work together to create something better. So that's the way that an ecological civilization would work. And one of the principles that comes from that is that in an ecological civilization and in an ecology, um, the health of the overall system relies on all the different individual parts also being healthy. So rather than one group uh, trying to take advantage of the other group, there's this recognition that all the different elements together rely on each other's flourishing for a full flourishing ecosystem. Um, There's a concept that I I call it fractal flourishing, which is basically Mm -hmm. like, um, probably people are familiar with this notion of fractals. They're like patterns in nature that repeat themselves at multiple scales from tiny patterns within a cell all the way to an ecosystem. And fractal flourishing is simply this recognition that when uh, the smaller parts are flourishing, the whole system flourishes and it works reciprocally in both directions. So imagine a a civilization that was like that, where um, the flourishing of every individual actually matters in order for the the society as a whole Mm. to be healthy. And when the society as a whole is healthy, it helps, of course, individual groups to flourish themselves. Um, So like another principle in um, ecological health is diversity. So rather than uh, this kind of system where everything is meant to be homogenized or where one, mm. um, one sort of um, McDonald's paradigm or, um, or <laughs> one um, uh, sort of Uber paradigm works well so that it applies flatly across the whole, the whole world, um, in, in a truly diverse ecosystem, all the different unique elements actually by pursuing their uniqueness become part of the richness a harmonic richness of the whole system so the system as a whole gets to be um just uh, fuller and healthier by um really embracing recognizing embracing and celebrating diversity so those are some examples of that and um and we, we could go on but maybe i could move a little bit now we've just touched on some of those principles to what an ecological civilization might actually look like in, yes, in certain, please do. Um, real yes. practical terms. Well, yes. one thing um, is that we'd be looking at a situation where you have circular economies, where so when when we were 
making things, manufacturing things. And it would be done with a sense, just like in, in an ecosystem, where the waste products of one process become the food for another process. So that um, it may not be possible to be 100% um, circular in that regard, um, just because of the sort of um, the kind of law of entropy or whatever, but vastly close to that uh, possibility, we're able to um, make sure that things are produced, not just to um, reduce or eliminate pollution, but to actually regenerate the earth. And this is this amazing, if we go back to this notion of symbiosis, um, in symbiosis, you don't sort of relate to the other agent or the other entity by saying, how can I reduce harm to that entity? But how can I make that entity actually healthier so then it's good for me? And similarly, um, it would be processing things so that they actually made the natural world and the environment around healthier rather than just less polluted. So a regenerative yes. economy. So that's one, one big concept. When you apply that to agriculture, uh, you'd have none of this monocropping that we hmm. see right now that is absolutely destroying the living earth. Um, but instead, you'd have regenerative agriculture, agroecology, there's this amazing uh, practice of permaculture, yeah. which really, once again, just leverages off the traditional ecological knowledge um, of indigenous uh, cultures throughout the millennia, but also applies modern scientific principles to that, um, which looks at how you can actually um, stack functions in a particular place so that you can actually produce far more goodness with virtually no negative effects through these kind of processes than monocropping, which uses fossil fuels for um, fertilizer and then creates this horrible, massive dead zones in the oceans that destroy yeah. life in the ocean too. Yeah, and, and strip mines the soils so that there's nothing actually left to grow in. It's this extractive way of, a, of approaching the living earth in a way that just destroys it just for short-term benefit and short-term profits. And, you know, you will see countless articles written out there um, by these gigantic um, big ag companies or people who are mm. in their pay or people who just um, have been manipulated by them to believe it, to think that this kind of, this form of monocropping is necessary to feed the world, if you will, you know, the seven and a half billion people in the world and population growth, or how else can people get fed? And that is just this myth, because in fact, there have been studies showing that agroecology, regenerative agriculture, when applied uh, properly, is far more productive with, of course, far less waste. So that's a, that would be a huge part of an ecological civilization. Yes. So how do we get there? Because it seems to me there are... So Amsterdam just became the first city to take on board the donut economic model and to endeavor to become a regenerative city. Regenerative agriculture in the last five years has become a reasonable buzzword to the extent that Farmers Weekly in the UK, which is not one of the most uh, progressive journals one could see, but it devoted an entire issue to regenerative agriculture. Um, so it's beginning to take off. But it seems to me that one of the things standing in the way is something that you mentioned in a, a YouTube that you did, which is that 69 of the biggest 100 economic units in the world are transnational companies. And they are utterly devoted 
to extractive profit, as far as I can tell, and they wield a lot of power. And some of them are beginning to come. I think there's a thing called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation over here, which is devoted to helping companies become circular in their way of working. But they still need shareholder value. You know, they still have a fiduciary duty to pay their shareholders. How are we going to step from here to there? Do you have an idea of that? I do. And I'm so glad you raised this because I think it's one of the biggest elephants in the room, if you will, that people rarely talk about. It's almost, it's so vast that people don't even want to look at it. Um, And the reality is, just as you say, these transnational corporations at this point, they literally control every element of human of the human experience. They control our culture. They control our media. Um, through the mass, massive political corruption, they now control most of the political structures of the world, including, mm-hmm. of course, in the country I'm in, in the US and in the UK. Um, and, um, and they control all the other parts, the finance, the um, no matter where you go. Um, and mm-hmm. the, what is so terrible about this is this... Um, this drive for shareholder value is it's kind of it's pathological and in the united states corporations are allowed to be considered as persons which is this absurd thing it gives them even more power in politics but they're not actually taxed as if they were people it's a very, it's another oh, of these interesting double things i mean it's it's all these structures are there designed to give them as much power as possible but the reality is that if they were were really persons they would be sociopaths because to your point, they're driven only by one thing, which is shareholder profit and increasing shareholder profit at all costs. Um, and if that were a person, they they would be ready to break rules, have no empathy, basically just on this path of destruction. And if you're lucky enough to recognize that person's a sociopath or a psychopath, you stay away from them. We can stay away or, from them. Or you elect them to run your country. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, it has been shown that um, if you look at senior executives and politicians, mm. um, there is a much, much higher uh, percent of of sociopaths and psychopaths in that group than in yeah. the population at large, which itself is a terrifying statistic. So yes. what we absolutely have to do is recognize that power, start talking about it, and look at ways to undo that power. And there are simple ways. And the thing is, they involve, because that power is so strong, people can't even think about them. But it's it's really quite simple, because in a, if a human being um, has something wrong with their DNA, it's very difficult to change that. You know, you can uh, change through through culture, but you can't actually go in and, and change their DNA. But with corporations, you can do that. You can actually, through laws, you can change the way they're structured. <sighs> you know, there's this concept that seemed hopeful at first, but then got to um, seem ineffective, was what's called the triple bottom line. Um, which mm. is, and there, are, there, you can actually have a corporation called a B corporation um, mm. or a benefit corporation, where you can actually change your charter to say we are going to have a triple bottom line of not just profits but also people and planets, um, meaning yeah. that we are actually going to be legally obligated as a corporation to manage for our employees, for the people who live in the plant or in the areas where we where we do our work and for the environment, for the planet as a whole. 
No, so that seems, well, okay, that sounds great. But the problem is, as long as that's voluntary, it's meaningless yeah. because yeah. the playing field is uh, dominated by these corporations that don't have these other bottom lines. And so it's almost impossible, even if you're a good person as a CEO and you want to do good, um, you're not going to keep your job if you know yeah. if there's an uh, ability to sort of... Um, Get, buy some sort of copper mine somewhere in the global south, and you have to involve in corruption to buy it. You have to basically pay slave labor wages, and the cheaper form of extraction involves causing massive pollution. And if, as a good person, you say, No, we're not going to do all those things, well, you're going to miss out on the opportunity to buy that mine. Your shareholder price yeah. will um, go down, and you'll lose your job. So, yeah. what has to be done is we have to change the laws saying that corporations, and corporations are only there as a result of governments actually initially allowing them to, um, to be incorporated, to do what they do. You can change the laws mm. to say they can only be incorporated under that triple bottom line. So they have to actually look out for the benefit of the planet and the benefit of the people, their employees and all people um, affected by them, including the consumers who buy their goods. And that has to have teeth in it. So you have to have some kind of system that only they have to have those charters um, renewed every few years. And if they mm. haven't met those three bottom lines, then they lose their charter. And they are they go out of business, and having been nice. a CEO and knowing what actually what you think about when you're a CEO, if you knew that you were literally going to lose your charter if you didn't meet those bottom lines, you would actually go out of your way to make sure you did, and we'd see those the this incredibly powerful force for destruction in our world right now could be basically harnessed and moved in a different kind of direction. So we have the snake eating its own tail at the moment, though, because the transnational corporations hold the reins of political power. They hold the media, as you said, as we said right at the top. The BBC is not mentioning Extinction Rebellion. They're, they're offering the kind of bland pabulum that keeps the government happy or keeps the public happy with the government. How are we going to get to a point where we can change those laws? Because what I'm watching in the UK and I think in the US are the extractivist instincts pushing the current governments are changing laws in the opposite direction faster than they have ever been changed. Right. The, the, they're removing all restrictions on extraction and wealth gathering as if it's kind of become a frenzy, a, a, a sort of end of world feeding frenzy, as far as I can tell, of we have to take as much as possible before it all falls over. And I wonder if they've all secretly read Jim Bendel's deep adaptation paper and they're just deciding to enrich themselves as fast as is humanly possible before it all goes really, really bad. And yet, and yet Mondragon exists. And yet there are small, thriving community bakeries, say, all over the world. There are things that were growing during COVID lockdown, little green shoots of people actually beginning to build communities to really work with their local community-supported agriculture in a regenerative way. So the things are happening. But if we can't change the laws at the top, I'm not certain they're going to happen fast enough. Do you have ideas of how we can reach the people who hold the power and persuade them to do things differently? 
I think that the changes that need to happen ultimately will only happen when there is massive, massive grassroots movements coordinated around the world, just telling the status quo, this is unacceptable, this is not going to happen anymore. Mm. And I think that the kind of actions we're seeing through Extinction Rebellion um, are the beginnings of what we need. Um, And the, the Extinction Rebellion gives me tremendous amount of hope because it's actually... And even though it's, of course, it's got its issues and and deals with uh, controversies and all kinds of things, but that's to be expected because the more successful you are in having an impact, the more um, you're going to be dealing with uh, with complexities as you have more and more of a larger impact on change. Yeah. But this is what we actually need. We need and um, to see things like the um, the school children movement following Greta Thunberg last year can just explode out of the blue um, because people are driven ultimately by their heart. Yeah. And so for any individual person, I think the transformation begins with your heart. It begins mm-hmm. with the sense of what you know is right, the sense of what that you know that um, life and caring for future generations and caring for other human beings around you and caring for the natural world, that is actually good and that matters. And that's worth um, transforming things around in order to really strive for life. And if you begin with your heart like that, then it it takes a level of of just simply looking at the um, drivel and the lies that are put out there in the media and just realizing how far that is from what your heart is actually telling you. And then it it gets to be a lot about connection, realizing that there are so many others around who actually care in the same way and and making those connections because none of us is going to do anything on our own. It's only through being part of bigger and bigger networks that we're actually going to see these changes happening. And I think that um, the transformation really can happen at a different level, different layers, all interacting at the same time for each of us. So one of those transformations has to happen within us. We've got to believe in what's possible, believe in life. And that doesn't mean necessarily being optimistic. Um, you know, I've, I've had a, a number of interactions with Jem Bendel on that topic. And, mm. you know, he and I agree on a lot. Um, but there is a, a slight difference, I think, in our outlook in the sense that I believe that um, it's not about sort of putting odds on how likely is it that things are going to end up okay or not, but it's about actually um, having hope, not hope as as a form of optimism, but hope as a way of living into each day. Hope is more like Mm -hmm. as an active verb of just knowing that there's a mystery in the future, yes. we don't know what's going to happen. There, the, there's yeah. far too much complexity to ever actually, you know, put odds on is civilization going to collapse ten years from now, a hundred years from now? If it does collapse in our current form, which obviously is very likely in some way or other, what's going to take its place? None of us know, but we do know that what we do is part of building into that future. So that's the kind yes. of hope I'm talking about, is just believing in the mystery and knowing that as an agent of life, each of us has the ability to actually co-create that future. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. And so you 
you have written about leeology. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, you are. <laughs> which is which is basically, as I understand it, about the co-creating of a future. Can you do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, for sure. Well, leeology is a word that I coined to uh, describe a different worldview, if you will, a different way of making meaning out of the universe, which looks at our intrinsic connectivity. And it actually comes from a ancient Chinese word, li, which means uh, literally the organizing principles by which all of the qi, which is like all the matter and energy of the world, connects up with each other. So li is really about the organizing principles of connection. And the word ology, of course, is a Greek word, um, a Greek-based word meaning like the study of. Logos. So the idea, the the very word itself, leology, combines um, traditional Asian thought with Western scientific ideas. And so it's a very much an, an embodied framework. It's this recognition of our deep interconnectedness and that to understand things, to your point that you said at the beginning of, of this podcast, it's not just about understanding it intellectually, but understanding it from our embodied existence as well mm. in a fully integrative way. And so the framework is all about integration and realizing that there is no one part of our lives that's actually separate from everything else, that we live in a universe of deep interpenetration where everything ultimately depends on everything else. There's this Buddhist concept of dependent origination, which is very similar mm. to that. And there's this beautiful concept put out by Thich Nhat Hanh, a, a Buddhist teacher, he calls interbeing, interbeing. Um, which yeah. is really what leology is about, that everything exists as a result of everything else. And so each of us as individuals um, are part of this interconnected web of meaning, essentially. And so the framework really is just looking at the different skills and traditions from traditional cultures, as well as modern scientific insights from system science and complexity theory and evolutionary biology, uh, and to form an integrated framework of understanding that could really allow us to make meaning of the world in a way that our current reductionist paradigm doesn't allow. Yes. And so we could create a narrative based on the leology and bring that out into the greater narrative, because we started at the beginning talking about Thatcher and Reagan. And what they did very cleverly was the, there is no alternative, to <laughs> shape it as if this was the way the world was, and it all you could do was work within that framework. And what seems very exciting to me with your leology idea is that if we could begin to normalize that it breaks down the concept that there is no alternative. It makes it obvious that there has always been an alternative. And we've just been kind of lured by the bright, flashy, shiny things to look in one particular direction, but we could instead look around us and grieve at the devastation and yet have hope as a way of moving forward. So I will direct people to your blog. Is there a community built around leology? Are you finding ways of getting this out into the world or is your book intended to do that? Um, this new book, The Web of Meaning, is in some ways a, a sort of a launch pad for this framework of leology. I don't actually use mm -hmm. the word leology in it um, because I, 
I just wanted the book itself to be just more available to anybody without people going, oh, do I, am I meant to, is this some new belief system or something or all that kind of stuff. Um, But it really is the launch pad of this different kind of framework. And in terms of leology, um, here in the Bay Area, uh, for a number of years, I've given workshops uh, which actually explores leology, which are really fun because they're this kind of integrative workshop where a little bit of guided meditation, um, a little, little bit of qigong, um, some dance, mm. and then focused conversations around topics either coming from traditional Chinese or Buddhist wisdom or coming from modern systems thinking and understanding how that affects our lives. And in the future, actually, probably starting next year, I might start to offer some of these workshops online in webinar online. formats so that yes. uh, we can have a bigger, um, really sort of start to expand um, these ways of thinking. Um, Brilliant. But above all, I love what you're saying is that this is a response to this notion there is no alternative. There absolutely is an alternative. There is a way of living our lives that are deeply meaningful. There's a way of structuring our society and civilization that can be life-affirming. And there is a possibility for us ultimately to move from this Anthropocene, this period of human um, supremacy and extractivism destroying the earth, to what some people are calling the symbiocene, like a far longer period, one that could uh, last for millennia and just indefinitely into the future, where humans and the living earth actually work regeneratively together, where we have a healthy and a rich um, natural world, and humans themselves are able to, um, not to try to go back to the past, to still develop technology, to look into the future, but, but to do so in a way that totally transforms our way of living. So that rather than technology being about how to um, control nature, technology would be about how to integrate with these deep natural processes of billions of years and allow true flourishing for humans and life on earth. That is amazing. And that is possible. We just need to persuade enough people around us to look into themselves, to feel into what's real, and to work together to and get rid of this destructive, um, really suicidal um, collective pathology that is rampaging right now. Brilliant. Yes, which is exactly what this podcast is all about. Thank you. So if we were going to offer the people listening a couple of things they could do here and now, when they switch off the podcast, go out into the world, have you any ideas of things that we could do actively to get this going other than reading The Patterning Instinct and waiting for your new book, which we will do. Well, well, thank you so much. Well, I think that one of the most valuable things to do is to really look to connect with others because these transformations really take place in community. And, you know, our whole uh, current mindset is all about the individual and individual freedom and individual autonomy and all these things that end up being so Um, self-destructive. And this different way of looking at things is about connecting. Um, and so one of the best ways to do that is to, is to connect first with your own heart. What is really meaningful to you? 
And then through that to connect with others who also share in those, those ways of feeling about things. Right. And then to um, look at the different layers in which you can connect. So one is with community and looking at its one of the core things is to working to transform your own community in ways that are life affirming. But at the same time, not to just close to the larger national and global implications of everything that's going on and to look at ways in which you connect up with movements such as Extinction Rebellion or others that are out there that are truly making a difference on this kind of global system and to not allow that sense of um, sort of doom and gloom to disempower you, Mm. to remember that that just plays into the hands of those very destructive forces that are destroying things. Um, And to realize that, to feel into the depth of what is going wrong, recognize how bad that is, um, but then recognize that we do not know what the future holds, but that what each of us does is actually what's going to create that future together. Yes. That's an incredibly good place to stop because we've pretty much reached our hour. And if everybody listening to this could go out and do that, then the world would be a different place because the ripples will ripple outwards. It doesn't take a huge number of people who really are committed to change to make that change happen. So, Jeremy, thank you very much indeed. We will all do what we can to be part of the transforming future. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much, man. It was great speaking with you today. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. So that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Jeremy for his promise of hope for a different future and an ecological civilization that lives regeneratively in harmony with the earth. We will be back next week with another conversation. And if you ever have ideas of people you would like to hear on the podcast, please do get in touch. You will find me at Manda with an M, that's M-A-N-D-A, at accidentalgods.life. In the meantime, ever thanks to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks, as always, to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to visit us, we are at accidentalgods.life on the web. You will find the show notes there, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and ways to join the Accidental Gods membership program should you want a structured training designed to give anyone, including you, the opportunity to connect with the web of life with integrity, authenticity, and grounding. Because if we're going to reach that generative future people, we have to do it by connecting with the rest of the world first. By asking, what do you want of me? And hearing clear, coherent, constructive answers that we can act on. We really need to let go of the idea that we can do this on our own, because I just don't think we can. So if you want pointers on how to connect, That's what the Accidental Gods program is about. So if you know of anyone else who would like to be active in being part of the generative dance of the world, do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.